This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns on Thursday. My friends at Bladder Cancer Canada join us now to talk about the hope the 80,000 Canadians diagnosed with bladder cancer now have because of a heightened awareness around the fifth most common cancer in Canada. It wasn't always this way, but with advancements in research and treatments, more people People are surviving this disease and living full lives. And this is due in part to the annual Bladder Cancer Awareness Walk, which I've been involved with since 2015 in memory of my mom, Sandy, who died of bladder cancer in 2012. Joining me, Dr. Alex Zlata, Director of Uroncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor in the Department of Surgery at U of T, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board, and Ferg Devins, Chair of Bladder Cancer Canada. Canada and a bladder cancer survivor himself. So nice to chat with you both again. Good morning. Great Good to afternoon. be here, Jane. Ferg, let's start by talking about the positive effect the annual walk has had in raising awareness, supporting bladder cancer patients, and advancing research and treatment. Well, the walk, you know, initially started out as an awareness walk, just to start to raise awareness for bladder cancer being well, it's the, the, the fifth most common cancer in Canada. And, uh, you know, who knew? Uh, so the walk initially started out as an awareness walk and has really turned into our key source of revenue all these years. Um, in the heyday, we were raising close to $600,000 annually. Last year, given COVID, we came in at about $430,000. So, Jane, the importance of this walk, September 25th and 26th, is that people register, participate, help raise awareness about bladder cancer in Canada, and importantly, to raise funds in support of bladder cancer's mandate. Well, let's talk about some of the research and advancements in treatment. Uh, Dr. Zlata, uh, what has happened over the years to improve treatments for bladder cancer patients and ultimately to eradicate bladder cancer in terms of the research? Well, uh, good afternoon, Jane. Happy to be uh, back uh, I think we've seen and we've witnessed uh, rapid advances in bladder cancer since your mom passed away every year. I'm happy to convey to the public uh, more and more advances. Just to cite a, a few, uh, for instance, after uh, the treatment of bladder cancer where unfortunately the bladder has to be removed, which we call a cystectomy. Uh, there was not a lot of things that could be done in, in men and women who were at risk of harboring what I call the enemy that you don't see, which is basically some cells hiding somewhere. And uh, the FDA, for instance, has approved um, a new drug, which is an immune immunotherapy that was previously done and for, um, given to patients when they had disease outside of the bladder, and which has shown that in those women and men who received uh, that prolonged survival and improved outcomes. That's one avenue out of uh, so many. Uh, there are many avenues, others when people, for instance, um, uh, 
don't uh, respond to BCG for the disease, which is localized, we were a little bit short of uh, good, good answers. And there's now a flurry of studies and a flurry of new treatments with uh, fairly exciting results that can keep patients uh, without tumor recurrence and keeping the bladder. And last but not least, I think FERG is fully aware in Bladder Cancer Canada, there have been shortages and for the availability of BCG, which is the most commonly given treatment inside the bladder after the tumor has been resected endoscopically to prevent the tumor from coming back and invading. And now, uh, since I think this month, um, a Canadian company has brought another source of BCG so that shortages now will be um, history and patients will be uh, able to get BCG, no matter what, in all circumstances. I oh, think wow. that's really important. That is fantastic. Um, it's been quite a few years, Ferg, uh, that you've been a survivor of bladder cancer. It must be really exciting for you personally and professionally uh, with your association with Bladder Cancer Canada to see all of these advances while you've been chair. Well, you know, and, 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 and Alex Slada and our doctors in Canada uh, proceed with great humility, but fact is they're leading a lot of this research yes. on a global front, and that makes it very exciting for us uh, to see the work that our research, our medical community is doing, not only here in Canada, but the impact that they have around the world. It's uh, it's very exciting, and you know, there's hope. Uh, this, just this past year, I lost a dear friend to metastatic bladder cancer. Oh, I had another friend who had his bladder removed, uh, radical cystectomy. And believe it or not, my dad, who turns 90 today, saw blood in his urine, called me, said, what do I do? And I said, you get to your doctor, you get to a urologist. And here we are a couple of months later. And Alex, you'll be happy to know this. My dad had non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And as of today, he's all clear. After, oh, wow. That's after a great. minor operation. So, you know, that's getting it early. And I think that's the most important message that we convey at Bladder Cancer Canada. If you see red in your urine, your audience out there, you get to your doctor and you see a urologist and you demand the tests that are required to ensure there's nothing more uh, significant. Right. Get it ruled out. Uh, and then if oh, if you do have it, in the case of your dad, it was treated fairly quickly. That That's really wonderful news, Ferg. Great to hear. Uh, if you are a bladder cancer patient or you have a loved one with bladder cancer and you have a question for Ferg or Dr. Zlata, please call in before the top of the hour, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Ferg, what about you? I know uh, bladder cancer can come back, so you are vigilant in your your checkups as time goes on, Yes. Yeah, I um, so I had two non-muscle invasive uh, tumors. They were high grade, so my urologist decided that I would uh, take BCG. So that was uh, eighteen treatments of BCG up to close to two years. And uh, my operation uh, was uh, in March of 2014. So I like to say I've been all clear ever since. So that that's a stage of cystoscopies where um, they go up uh, into the urethra to look inside your bladder. Um, after my operation, that would have been every three months with my BCG treatments, then I extended to every six months, and I'm now on an annual checkup uh, to make sure everything's uh, all clear. 
And as you mentioned, you did not have your bladder removed. Um, Dr. Zlata, what percentage of patients need to actually have their bladder removed? Well, thanks God, not that many. Uh, so I think we have to realize that at presentation, about 70% of tumors uh, are actually presenting at what we call the non-muscle invasive space previously superficial. And that means that only 30% actually present with either a tumor which is more advanced and or unfortunately sometimes has already left the the um, the bladder. The interesting thing, and I, I, I mentioned that already uh, during previous uh, sessions and, and for Bladder Cancer Canada, is that even when the tumor goes into the muscle, cystectomy removal of the bladder is not necessarily the only solution. And our group, but many other groups in Canada and worldwide, have observed that when tumors are unique, less than seven, eight centimeters, three inches, um, and without what we call multifocal disease, there is a possibility actually not to have to remove the bladder, but to give a radiotherapy with chemotherapy low dose after completely resecting endoscopically. And we had shown in the past that this was providing equal outcome as cystectomy in those specific conditions. And I can already tell you that on a larger scale, because we're partnering uh, with colleagues uh, worldwide, uh, we seem to observe exactly the same thing. So what was only cystectomy removal in the past might not be the future. And that also opens a lot of hope for patients. But it's also important to, to make note, Dr. Zlata, that you can live very normally without your bladder. My mom was on her way to doing that, uh, having had it removed. Uh, she had metastatic bladder cancer, so it had gone into her lungs and other areas of her body. But she was adapting very nicely uh, to, you, to you not have You are absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm always amazed how well patients adapt. You were, you know, you were humans. And if you look at studies, actually the quality of life of people who had undergone that surgery is equally good. And so you're absolutely right that in those cases where we have no other choice, quality of life remains excellent. We're talking about bladder cancer in advance of the bladder cancer walks, which happen all across the country on the weekend of the 25th and 26th. Once again, for the second year in a row, they are happening where people live in their neighborhoods with, with small groups getting together. Uh, as a result of the pandemic, we are not gathering in Toronto at Sunnybrook Park. Uh, hopefully next year, Ferg, uh, if once we get through this pandemic, it would be great to because there is that camaraderie when uh, family members members and survivors all come together uh, in an effort to improve uh, the lives of bladder cancer patients. Oh, for sure. That's certainly one element that we're missing, Jane, is bringing people together. You know, oftentimes it's it's patients who can get together that sometimes form patient support groups because they meet each other and they appreciate the support. It's great for caregivers and families of survivors. 
or in many instances, as is in your case, you know, losing your mom, but you come to the forefront in support of bladder cancer and you're making a difference. And, and we have many people that continue to do so. I mean, the importance of the walk is that we reach out to our patient community. Our walk is really patients and their survivors, their caregivers, their family members, and those that support them on their journey. So the walk is so critical. And people can register and join us at bccwalk.ca bccwalk.ca. Please register, and as we say, walk where you are, September 25th and 26th. Or you can support Ferg or me. (laughs) Uh, Both of us have teams. Ferg, you are a fundraising dynamo. Uh, Honestly, it is so impressive. Um, You you are obviously very well connected to a lot of people, and here at Zoomer Radio, I'm blessed to have so many amazing listeners contributing every year to the cause that is near and dear to my heart and yours. Well, you know, you're fortunate with your audience supporting you, Jane, all these years. It's fantastic. And, you know, as a former executive at Molson uh, with natural respons- national responsibilities, I have a network of hospitality folks across the country. And you know our hospitality industry in Canada. They support those that uh, have a need. And so I'm very blessed to have a network across the country that supported me all these years. I'm with Ferg Devins, a chair of Bladder Cancer Canada and a bladder cancer survivor himself, along with Dr. Alex Lotta, director of urooncology at Mount Sinai, professor in the Department of Surgery at U of T, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. We need to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, uh, I do want to hear from you. Uh, if you are a bladder cancer survivor, if you're a patient, if you have a loved one with bladder cancer, uh, Dr. Zlata is one of the leading experts in his field, and certainly to have an audience with him, uh, many people wait months and months to get an appointment with Dr. Zlata, although I know he tries to condense that wait time. So give us a call if you have any questions or concerns, 416-360-0740. Or one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about advances in bladder cancer research and treatment uh, as a result of the Bladder Cancer Walk, the annual event that happens in communities right across Canada. This year, another virtual event. Uh, if you're interested in more information or you would like to donate, you can go to zoomerradio.ca and click on the link. Uh, you'll see my picture there with a bladder cancer banner or bccwalk.ca. Uh, Ferg, it's, it's really, it's really quite something too how the symbolism of bladder cancer, the big lemon, we see it more and more around uh, the country. It really has heightened the awareness that you want to see your urine yellow, uh, well, clear if you drink a lot of water. Um, and, and if you see red, if you see blood in your urine, you need to get to a doctor right away. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'm sure Dr. Lada would remind folks of this, too. It may be just once, you know, and people think, well, I saw blood once. And uh, if I see it again, maybe I'll do something about it. If you see blood in your urine, there's something to be investigated, folks. So you've got to make sure that if you see blood, see your doctor. Yes, you want it yellow. That's why we have the lemon icon, because the color of yellow, the color of lemons, that's what you want your urine to be. But if you see red, you've got to ask your doctor. 
Doctors Lotta, what else could it be if you see blood in your urine other than bladder cancer? So not everybody who has blood in their urine has bladder cancer, but you want to get that ruled out. For sure. I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you can have blood without. Uh, say that you have a stone, stone in, which is common in the kidney, the ureter, the bladder, and that, that's just uh, roughly uh, mucosa, you can have blood. If you have, men have an enlarged prostate, and sometimes some of the vessels there are, are uh, very fragile, it can bleed as well. But you are absolutely right that if you see blood, you once could, should take no chance and consult. Maybe it's worth reminding uh, the public some of the risk factors. Yes. And some of the risk factors are smoking. So many people are not still aware that smoking directly is linked to bladder cancer. They think lung, they think many things, but not uh, um, bladder. It is directly related to bladder cancer. The family history of bladder cancer is certainly something to take into account. Um, being exposed as a profession to dyes, metals, or petroleum products in the workplace is something that also increases the risk. Uh, people who have received radiation to the pelvis for, for another tumor, usually 15, 20 years down the road, are also at risk. Um, some waters, and this is more um, relevant to countries in, in South America, where there are high levels of arsenic are also uh, risk factors. Bladder infections very recurrent, and we always ask whether it, it can actually be a risk. The, the, the short answer is yes. If you have a lot of, of, of infections after many, many years or decades, it's also a, a risk factor. So I think it's a combination of understanding the risk factors and reacting quickly when you see red and the uh, yellow lemon is an, an amazing ad. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Let's go to the phones now. We do have some people in our Zoom radio audience who want to talk about bladder cancer. Bill in Mississauga. Hi, how are you today? Hi, I'm very fine, thank you. So what is your story or question? Well, my story is pretty simple. Um, there's, I've always been a strong believer that when it comes to cancer, there's the lucky ones and the unlucky ones. Uh, medical doctors may not agree, but I was one of the lucky ones. When I was 68, I was, I'm 76 now, I was involved in a sporting activity for most of my life, and it was a bit aggressive, got off the ice, and sure enough, I saw blood in my urine. I was pretty nervous, went to the doctor right away, uh, they sent me to the hospital, and it appeared that um, um, I had two tumors in my in my bladder, and one of them broke, uh, probably from banging around, I guess, I don't know how, but it broke, and that's where the blood came from. And they were both uh, uh, non-muscular invasive. Tried the BCG for six months, didn't work. Uh, ended up operating and cutting part of my bladder out. Uh, that's the quick part of the story. The good part of the story is that I go for um, a cystoscopy every six months, and that's when they found six years later, in 2019, uh, the cancer came back, but not in the bladder, in the urotor. Um, which I've learned a lot about this stuff since this has all happened. Another tumor, cut it out, and uh, they just keep examining every six months. And, and the good part about this is they found the second one not by poking and prodding. Everything looked good, they said, but by the urine sample. And to me, I found that is so, so important. And I haven't, I haven't listened to your station uh, for the whole process, just the last 15 minutes, but... 
I think the urine sample that we give is is a, a sign of what might or might not be there, and and that saved me from having the urethra taken out and one of my kidneys. So oh wow, just by catching it early. I'm, yes, yeah, exactly, it, Bill. Yeah. Thank you so much for calling in. Um, we were all riveted by your story. Really appreciate it. Hey, listen, no trouble at all. You guys keep up the good work and. And the walk is, is absolutely excellent, and the, and the money for research is, is well spent. I know that. So Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for calling in. Uh, Dr. Zlata, would you like to uh, comment on, on Bill's story? Well, first of all, super happy, like all of us, uh, for this great outcome. What, what we need to know is that the lining in the bladder is the same that goes from the kidney that collects the urine, goes, travels on, in the ureter, and arrives into the bladder. It's the carpet, so to speak, is exactly the same. And so whatever caused in the first place a, a tumor to arise in the bladder can actually also affect the ureter. And that's exactly what it happened is so that when people have a tumor in the, in the bladder that requires not only a, to monitor the bladder by cystoscopy as built, but also to have on a regular uh, schedule upper track imaging with usually CT or ultrasound. Now, the issue of the urine test is certainly very, very important. The problem of the urine test is that it's what we call very specific, which means that when the urine test is abnormal, it clearly tells you that there is an issue. But the problem is that so far those urine tests are not sensitive enough, which means that Bill was lucky. It was positive, so it was picked up super early on. Sometimes people are a little bit less lucky in the sense that they still have the tumor, but the urine test doesn't pick them up, and this has been well demonstrated. And that's why there's a whole bunch of research supported by, by Bladder Cancer Canada and other institutions to improve on this urine test and to have new, usually genetic or molecular markers. I would be remiss if I did not mention during our conversation here, Drs. Lada and Ferg Devins, that Bladder Cancer Canada has been highlighted as being one of those few charities that basically uses all of its fundraising to go to the cause to support bladder cancer patients and uh, for groundbreaking research. So, Ferg, if you have a, a limited amount of money to give to charities, Bladder Cancer Canada is a good one because you know that all of your money is going to the cause and not to administration. Yeah, we, we still have an administrative cost. We try to manage those, uh, you know, 10% or less over the years, Jane. So you know, there's still some administrative costs, but, but certainly our volunteer board take a very active role. We have an active board with respect to, you know, engaging with our patient community. And I, and I should stress, you know, we're, we're all about supporting our patient community. Secondly, to raise awareness. And thirdly, to provide seed funding for the research that Dr. Slada is talking about. And we've partnered with the Canadian Urological Association, particularly the last couple of years, to ensure we extend those dollars. So, folks listening, importantly, we support patients, we raise awareness, and we fund research. It's as simple as that. That's our mandated Bladder Cancer Canada. And I know we've got a team of volunteers across this country that are just so proud of the work that's done. Uh, Jane, people should check it out at bladdercancercanada.org. And again, if you'd like to walk, we'd sure love to have people walking 
and they can do so at bccwalk.ca. And for those people who are a little bit too shy to call in but do have bladder cancer, Ferg, and are looking for the support that is provided through Bladder Cancer Canada, uh, your recommendation for these individuals? So there's lots of resources at bladdercancercanada.org. We also have a discussion forum, so people can go into the discussion forum as themselves or anonymously with a with a you know with an anonymous handle and participate one to one with other patients uh, because your medical support is so critical. But then there's that patient journey, and what we have found is that that patient to patient support through that journey is just so important for our bladder cancer patients in Canada. So that's all available at bladdercancercanada.org. Lots of resources there. Uh, I encourage people, if they're facing bladder cancer or a loved one is, to check out that resource. Okay, we are running late, uh, but Bob Comsick is giving me the thumbs up that I can run a minute over here. Uh, if, if I may, just one ad. Very quickly, Dr. Zlata, because somebody on the line wants to talk to you. Oh, uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yes, Irene, go ahead. Hi, Dr. Zlata. Um, in 2019, I had the pleasure of meeting you. I just want to say you were so amazing with me. I um, I, came, I had gone to Mount Sinai because I thought I had a blockage with my ileostomy, and they found a cancer at the tip of my kidney, and I also have MS, and I came to your office, and you were so kind, and you explained everything, and you really took care of me, and you put me in the hands of Dr. Kachuba, who has been amazing with me. And so far, every year, everything's good. Um, but I just wanted to say That's you're nice. an amazing doctor. That's very and nice, I had, Irene. I'm so happy I had the pleasure of meeting you. Well, how about that, Dr. Zlata? <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, and I'm really happy for, for that. I, the, the, the point, and, and really appreciate that, the, the point I was trying to make is that, and just to wrap up here, is that I think that research, and that again is, uh, thanks to Bladder Cancer Canada, BCAN of the U.S., people have realized that even when we do research, we need to take into account patients' perspective and preferences. And a whole lot of research now is not only what doctors think is good, but what patients experience. And this has been really promoted and held by, by Bladder Cancer Canada. It's another really big, big piece of the puzzle to improve outcomes for patients. I thank you both so much for your time. I look forward to next time. Thank you, Jane. Walk on. <laughs> Ferg Devins and Dr. Alex Zlata of Bladder Cancer Canada. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Have a great day. Sorry, Bob, you're on late. <laughs> you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is observing Rosh Hashanah. She will be back on Thursday. Less than two weeks to go until the federal election. 13 days. And we're starting to see some shifting in voter support. The latest Nanos research poll has the Trudeau Liberals at 34.1%, followed by the O'Toole Conservatives at 32, the Jagmeet Singh New Democrats at 20.9, followed by the 
enemy poll Green Party at 4.6%. All of the parties are up slightly in voter support, with the exception of the Conservatives down 2.8%. Joining us to discuss, as they do every Tuesday, Fightback Strategy Panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Hello to you all. Hi, Hi Jane. Hey there. Speaking with Nick Nanos earlier this morning on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane, and he called it significant that the Liberals are up two points on the Conservatives since the Conservatives had a five-point lead at one point last week. I'll get your reaction to that. Uh, Charles, you can begin. Uh, thanks, uh, Jane. And uh, only two weeks left, and certainly the polling indicates uh, a bit of a comeback. I mean, there's been some flip-flops by O'Toole. There's the whole gun control uh, issue and a number of items around the vaccines. Uh, and I think the anti-mob is working against uh, some of the conservatives because, albeit they're not conservatives, they're a little bit more of a fringe group, um, they do seem to have some association with that. I think the other thing is they've now seen their plans. I mean, to those that are paying attention, at least, the only cost of plan are the liberal plan. Um, the NDP plan is a bit far-reaching, and and the conservatives have it uncosted, and they estimate it's probably $100 billion. But notwithstanding, there is a sense of maybe Trudeau is seen as fighting back and sort of showing that counterpunch that, that they seem to like about him. It's a, it's a risk, though. Too much of this is dependent upon... People's uh, character, uh, and not enough, not enough about the party in general. Well, we will talk about the individual issues and happenings, uh, but just the overall picture. John, over to you. Yeah, I think you know when we've always talked about polls, you know, being snapshot in time. The the thing about the Nanos poll is that it's a daily tracking poll, which shows trends. Uh, unlike the other polls, which you know they tend to do on a, on a, a specific day, usually a week or so before they get released. Um, you know, I think the, the the positive thing for conservatives is that you know Aaron O'Toole is is much more recognized now. There's uh, his his favorabilities uh, versus the negatives. You know, were 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 sort of opposite, or I should say, the negatives were far greater than the positives uh, back before the election campaign. Whereas now they kind of reversed, and and so that the people that have seen Aaron O'Toole generally feel very positive about him. At least that's what the numbers show, which is I think is good news for Aaron especially given the fact that the first couple of weeks were really positive for him. Um, you know, when you look at the polls, I think it's seat projections that you have to look at because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, they're still within a margin of error. 32 to 34 uh, is a margin of error. There's a bit of a trend that's uh, showing a bit of an up and down, which shows that, you know, some people are watching that if, if, a, if a leader has a particularly bad week or a good week, that's reflective. But uh, other polls show that the Conservatives are, are ahead. Um, and, and that's a positive sign going into debates, I think. And that's one of the things that we're going to see over the next little while, Jane, is the French debate tomorrow and then the English debate on Thursday. Um, and those are going to be actually quite pivotal in campaigns because debates do matter. They, te- they you know, sometimes they, uh, they tend to showcase a leader uh, in a very positive way and other leaders in a negative way. So I think a lot of people will be watching that and, and certainly the pundits and the media will be uh, will be reflecting on the debates uh, once they happen. And that leads into the last week or two of the campaign. We will drill down on uh, strategies ar- around the debates. Uh, but first, Karen, your your thoughts on the overall picture. 
Yeah, I, I um, you know, I agree with Charles in that the the anti-Trudeau debates are actually working against the Conservatives. I think, um, even though now they're more openly saying that it's the People Party of Canada, which is not associated with the Conservatives. I think, you know, the general sense is that the anti-vaxxers are conservative, and and that's not the case. And so, um, that that will play itself out as it does. And you know, Trudeau again, he he tends to do well from the underdog position, which is again where he is right now, even though he's leading in the polls. You know, his goal was to get a majority government, which uh, at, the, at, at this moment in time seems out of reach. And so he's back into that underdog position where he, he tends to, I think, um, his campaigning improves to be candid um, because now he's not fighting, uh, you know, he's fighting against the conservatives. And, and there is a bit of a negative tone, I, I think. Um, I would ask the panelists if they'd agree with me that has been injected in the campaign. And um, as campaigns come to the final two weeks, but but I will say I'm not sure yet where the momentum is right now. That it, it was going for the Conservatives, it seems to have stopped. I'm not sure they've peaked. There's always a worry they peaked too soon. I don't know that they've peaked. Um, but I'm also not sure that I don't know that the Liberals have peaked either. So I think this week, normally I wouldn't spend a lot of time on debates because you know it's again it's a bit of showmanship, not actual debating. But I actually think these debates are going to matter more than they may have in past elections. And of course, we always want to hear from you as well, especially if you've changed the way you're going to vote. Were you considering, I mean, uh, polls suggested that the majority of Canadians were not happy that Justin Trudeau called an election and some said, I'm going to vote for the New Democrats. If you're more progressive, left-leaning, some more on the right said, I'll vote conservative. Are you coming back to the Liberals uh, now that we're this far into the campaign and uh, maybe those initial feelings uh, of annoyance over the election have worn off. Uh, we always like to hear from those of you who've changed your mind. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. Uh, you've both uh, mentioned there, John and Karen, about uh, the debate. So let's go down that path. Uh, Charles, what do all of the leaders need to do, at least the three main party leaders, to to really set the course for the final days of this campaign? Well, while the polling seems to be close, we've got to remember uh, the pre-M was 18 points ahead. So he has gone down, so he has to fight back. Um, I have fought from behind in previous elections, and usually what happens is it's a misstep by the opponent. And at this point, the Liberals have underestimated their opponent, and that's a cardinal rule that you don't do. And uh, so they have to come back and recognize that O'Toole is not seen as um, a scary guy. He uh, has a good resume. But his policies are at issue. And that's where they got to concentrate now going forward. And, you know, the problem to some extent is Trudeau's being overexposed, but that's also a strength to the extent that he can fight it back. And so there's some fatigue, and people are going to feel fatigue, but Labor Day is gone. Now they're going to be paying attention. And he's got to pay attention to the issues that matter to us and look forward in terms of how to resolve them. So I, I would stay focused. Trudeau has to stay focused and be disciplined in his approach, not be caught off guard by the fringe groups. They want to knock him off his game. Use him to his advantage. Uh, the, in debates and in anything you do, use the strength of others to your advantage. Make it so that they are the ones that are being defensive. And unfortunately, Trudeau has to be because he's the incumbent, but he has some things that he can challenge them with, and he has to bring that out 
against O'Toole. John, it seems to me that Justin Trudeau, there's more empathy for him when he goes off script, when he is just natural, when he is just speaking from the heart, uh, as he has done uh, with regards to these anti-vaxxer protesters. Uh, And as far as Aaron O'Toole goes, John, a lot of people coming back from vacation, they may not have been watching or listening to a lot of election coverage, but the debate could be a first opportunity to be introduced to Aaron O'Toole. Well, which is why I think the debate is going to be important to uh, to all of them, because, you know, and, and, and Karen is right about, you know, sometimes debates don't really have an effect on on folks because, you know, some people watch them, but they don't they don't get an analysis uh, or they hear the spin from from each of the parties saying that, the, you know, the, the respective leader is one. This one's going to be a little different for that very reason, Jane. And I think it's going to be an opportunity for Aaron O'Toole to get out there and, and let people know that he's not Andrew Scheer, that he's not Stephen Harper, that he's a new leader with new ideas and a new approach. Um, and that his, his policies are actually mainstream Canadian policies, like the, the announcement today about lowering wireless rates. And, uh, and, and those kinds of policies, I think, are going to be policies that Canadians uh, will want, but they just need to know about them. And I think the prime minister has to be careful that, you know, it's one thing to be uh, on the attack about these deplorable protesters and, and every, every party leaders condemn them. Um, you know, and as you saw the prime minister today in his announcements, and, and you know, it's, he's focused almost exclusively on, on the protesters and how bad they are and, and all that stuff, which of course they are. But, you know, it, it also takes him away from his message. And you could sort of get away with that for a day or two or three. But if you seem to be getting a theme of about just, you know, talking about protesters and how awful they are and how they should be condemned and how Aaron O'Toole is responsible for them, which is nonsense, that I think is going to wear thin on people. So I think it's important to condemn them as he has and as everybody has, but he's got to pivot to what he wants to do. And I think the debate has to be less about attacking uh, Aaron O'Toole. Uh, and more about what he wants to do, because again, the, the whole issue of the ballot question, which everybody talks about, why there is a reason for this election, is still unclear. Uh, and as rates go up, and as the you know, the Theresa Tam, the doctor, the national doctor, basically had her first briefing since the election, talking about everybody needs to be careful. And school, you know, started this week. All of that is going to play very, very important. And if things go sideways, they're going to say, well, why did the prime minister call this election? He has yet to define it, and that, this debate might be an opportunity for him. To define it, and mm-hmm. I'll say one thing: I've always never underestimated Pierre Trudeau or um, Justin Trudeau. Forgive me. He is a formidable candidate, and uh, and I think both Charles and, and and Karen rightly said that if he's if his back is against the wall and he's in defensive mode, uh, that's when he's at his best. But you can't do it too often when you're the prime minister because you've got to be forward thinking and talking about hope, and he's got to do more of that and less of the attacking. Karen, wouldn't it be the opportunity for Justin Trudeau to really drive home the wedge issue of uh, mandatory vaccinations that he is in favor and Aaron O'Toole is not? But again, uh, Jane, so, you know, when when Trudeau came out and said that he would make vaccines mandatory for the federal workplace and Aaron O'Toole said he would um, provide, um, you know, testing options for those that don't want to get vaccinated, Mm -hmm. That's actually the same thing. And so when, when Justin Trudeau comes out and says, I'm in favor of mandatory vaccination, okay, but then what? And whereas Aaron O'Toole says, well, I'm in favor of vaccination, um, but for those who don't, here's what we're going to do to keep people safe. So there's not a lot of daylight between their positions. And although he likes to seem portrayed as a wedge issue, it's, it's really not. 
um, you know, there is some there is some questioning around, well, you know, why aren't the PC candidates getting vaccinated? And I, and I think that that's a bit of a wrinkle that Aaron O'Toole is going to have to manage mm-hmm. um, and figure out a better response to by the debates, no question, because he doesn't want to be defined by the anti-vaxxers, which he's at risk of doing unless he can be clearer with his message and have it resonate. But I, I think actually Aaron O'Toole is in a bit of a sweet spot going in this debate because, um, the, you know, the strategy to date has been to villainize the leader of the progressive, of the, of the PC party, of the conservatives. <laughs> and Aaron's not a villain. <laughs> so if he can maintain his composure, if he can get crisper on his delivery around how he's, you know, not that different from Justin Trudeau with respect to vaccines, um, you know, he's got to kind of button down the gun issue because that could trip him up. But, you know, if he can maintain his demeanor and he can come across as a safe place for people to vote if they are disgruntled with the Liberals, I think that will work to his advantage. I think he has the most to gain coming out of, the, out of these debates, but it, it will be critical. This week is, I think, absolutely critical for all parties um, in terms of Election Day because after these debates, there's just not a lot of time. So whatever damage, as it were, gets done, there's not enough time to repair it. Whatever uh, points that are made, I think that will be the, the momentum going into the campaign. And if it's a draw on the debates, then uh, it'll it'll then I, I, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. I'm with our strategy panelists, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Souza. It's Jane for Libby. Uh, we'll go to the phones now. Some of you want to get in on this conversation about uh, the voter sentiment shift that we're starting to see uh, ahead of the election on September 20th. Again, a reminder: the numbers four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Let's go to Sita in Mississauga. Go ahead. Hi, everyone. This is not our country. We don't behave like this. It's disgusting when protesters cannot control their anger. Don't they learn by now that action really don't solve anything but causes more anger, pain, frustration, and division? Anti-vaxxers, those out-of-control protests should be charged. They should have criminally charged brought to them, and the police should not be afraid to do their job. They should not be afraid that um, about rights or being racial, etc. It is it is okay not to like someone. It is okay to voice your opinion, but it's definitely not okay to hurt anyone, especially our prime minister. Words, sticks, and stones can hurt. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Sita. Thanks for calling in. This, uh, Charles, this is becoming an issue. These anti-vaxxer protesters, and uh, they could certainly have the opposite effect than what they're intending. I think they are having the opposite effect, and Sita, I think, makes a good point. Um, anger begets bang, anger, and and you just play in the mud, and, and, and it infuriates me that a fringe group, a minority of people, are holding hostage to all of us. While many Canadians may be questioning why we're having an election, this actually gives people a reason as to why it should happen. Like, these protesters are actually doing the opposite by suggesting maybe we do need a majority. Maybe we do need to take uh, stronger controls over these issues. And and, and, I, and I agree that, you know, sometimes um, there is very little difference between, and Karen made the point, between the two leaders around the vaccine program, but it does seem that the Conservatives are weak on the vaccine. They've been weak on gun control. They're weak on the health care, or at least the notion of private health care. They're weak on child care, climate change. All those issues 
are what they have to be concentrating on, and the anger that per, that, that that is permeated over this pandemic and the thoughts of trying to provide support for those most vulnerable and 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 protect our health is a, is is bizarre. No one's forcing people to be vaccinated, but we are taking the steps necessary to protect people, our neighbors, and our families. And if they don't want to get vaccinated, they don't have to. But that, that doesn't mean they have the right to impose themselves on us, on others, who are taking the steps to try to get uh, herd immunity. Bob in Mississauga, you're up next on Fight Back. Go ahead. Hi there. I'm just wondering if we as the public and the media have forgotten about the lousy job Mr. O'Toole did as Veterans Affairs Minister. He uh, laid off call center staff so veterans couldn't call in. He got into arguments with families of the fallen. I've not heard his previous reputation as a cabinet minister mentioned anywhere. I'll uh, let John answer that, uh, those concerns. John. Well, you know, I think I think they they have, and, and certainly campaigns uh, bring those those issues out. I think some some will say that that Errol Tool um, actually did a, a lot while while he was Veterans Affairs Minister. I obviously, um, if, if you're a veteran and you feel otherwise, I'm not going to ever second guess that. Um, but I know that you know some some people, uh, you know, when he actually became the Minister of Veterans Affairs, he took over from someone else who actually was there and was not doing a particularly good job. And I think Aaron did did his best to try to to change and give veterans a lot more attention and, and more more focus and more funding and, and more support that they needed. Um, but obviously, you're going to get some that that don't feel that way. But I think just in general, um, his time as a cabinet minister has been you know has been reviewed and looked at, and, and certainly the, the Liberals and others have. have commented on it, but obviously didn't do a bad enough job that they're making it a big issue uh, on the campaign. Karen, let's talk about the gun policy, which has become an issue in recent days. Aaron O'Toole has sent out mixed messages promising to keep in place a 2020 cabinet order banning 1,500 makes and models of firearms, but also saying that it will be reviewed. At the same time, the Conservative Party platform promises to repeal the 2020 order, but the online version was tweaked last night to add the line that all firearms that are currently banned will remain banned. This is mm-hmm. this is confusing to people even in the know. What are what is the regular voter supposed to think about this? Yeah, I think that's the um, the problem right now for the conservatives. They don't have a lot of clarity on that. And um, it, it it you know at first it appeared that Aaron was going to you know took a took a step back and pivoted, um, but now it's a bit confusing. And so there has to be more clarity and a better message around that. Because fundamentally, you know, I, I don't know if the Liberals ban the right guns or not. I, to be honest with you, I don't know. But I also don't know that anybody's going to cast a vote for somebody who's going to allow assault rifles in Canada. So, you know, there is, there is a gap there that needs to get closed. And, and I would say get closed relatively quickly because, you know, certainly the future of the country um, is more than this issue. But this issue, I think, will, will become a bigger issue unless the Conservatives can nail it down. Uh, Charles and John, I want to get your reaction to this as well, because it is turning into kind of a thing this week before we get back to the phones. Charles, you first. Yeah, I, I think it's a deciding factor. People are recognizing um, that these assault rifles and, and guns are inappropriate, and O'Toole obviously recognizes that too. And that's why he retracted his earlier statements. Um, but it's... Um, it's you know this it's it's a it's a decision that people are making around not just 
course, being a finance minister, I worry about the financial deficits and so forth. But this is all about the political deficit that exists in this campaign. And people want to go with someone that's focused and disciplined, is, does their homework before they make their decisions. And I think that's what that, what's at stake here. Well, two has to now respond to flip-flops and retractions and changing of stories and speaking in one part of the country one way and another part of the country a different way. And those kind of things, that's, that, that hurts the candidacy. And uh, it's what Trudeau's banking on. John, your thoughts on this gun policy and uh, the confusion around it? Well, you know, Charles makes a really good, really good comment about flip-flopping, and I think everybody, and, and Charles would know because he was always a successful politician back in the day, but would know that, you know, good leaders do change their, their opinions as, as when necessary. And I think that, you know, no one's talking about the fact that the Prime Minister, you know, or Justin Trudeau finally changed his mind on the Kitchener uh, uh, candidate who was allegedly under, uh, under sexual harassment uh, uh, allegations and finally, you know, canned him as a candidate. That was a flip-flop as well. But nonetheless, you know, I think that this is an issue for the Conservatives. I think they've obviously uh, uh, tried to clean it up over the cr- course of the last couple of days. Uh, they are going to ban assault weapons. That, that ban will remain in place. The present, ba- the present ban on a number of other firearms that were classified in 2020 will remain in place. And all he's saying is, look, when, when there's, there should be a review, a nonpartisan, nonpolitical review of the guns that should be and ought to be banned, and those will be banned. And I think that's a, na- a natural process that shouldn't be made politicized. You know, but the key thing on all this, though, Jane, quite frankly, is just he wants to end g- gang violence. At the end of the day, the, 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 as we know in Toronto, the issues with respect to those who are getting killed and murdered are from guns that are coming in from illegally from the U.S. And he wants to put more money and more time in ensuring that the border officers and police officers have the resources to stop those guns that are being illegally brought forward. Uh, here, especially in Canada, the U.S., you get all the assault rifle, rifle and assault weapon uh, issues. Here, you get some for sure, but the majority of the murders that we're seeing in Toronto are based on illegal guns from the border. And those have to stop. Uh, before we wrap up our segment, our weekly segment with our strategy panel, always goes by so quickly. Uh, I, we've uh, we've barely talked about Jagmeet Singh, and one in five Canadian voters support him at the moment. Uh, would vote for him if the election was held today. He is very likely attracting liberal voters who are annoyed, uh, pissed off that Trudeau called an election. But can he keep them until Election Day? I'll, I'll go around the table. Charles. Yeah, he's actually doing a great job on TikTok. He's, uh, he's really reaching out to the younger generation. Um, he's being seen as hip, I guess, in some respects. But you go through his platform, and you recognize that they're outlandish, and it's hard. It's very difficult for him to uh, deliver on those promises. But you're absolutely right. It happened in Ontario. The surge of the NDP obviously did away uh, with a lot of candidates and colleagues of mine in the last election, and that's a real risk to Trudeau. One advantage of all of this, though, in this election is that there's now more female and Indigenous candidates. People like Jagmeet, more diversity. And I think that'll make for a more dynamic legislature, hopefully, as this finishes off this, this month. Karen Jagmeet Singh, uh, what's to become of him in the last 13 days? Well, I guess it, ironically, it depends on the strength of the Conservatives. Because if the Conservatives start pulling ahead and doing quite well, well, then the Liberals will unleash the boogeyman of the NDP. Or not the boogeyman of the NDP. They'll, uh, they'll say that those who are thinking about voting mm-hmm. for Jagmeet Singh, if you vote for him, that means you'll elect a Conservative government, and that would be terrible. Right. And so, <laughs> so it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And if 
the NDP uh, ends up losing support, it's probably because the Conservatives are gaining support. And John? Yeah, just quickly, I think the NDP and Jagmeet Singh, this campaign is a lot different than the other campaign that he ran. Uh, this one, he's stronger, he's more known. Uh, he's attracting a lot of the younger voters. Now, the question, of course, is if they go out and vote. But I think that he will hold a lot of the NDP or a lot of progressive votes this time around, unlike the other time, because there are people that are just not happy with Pierre, or with Justin Trudeau, but are happy with Jagmeet Singh. And I think he will hold on to them. And that's a big trouble for the Liberals. Okay, just uh, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you, since last time we talked, uh, Premier Doug Ford did come out and announce a vaccine certificate program. It's a two-parter, proof of vaccine. Vaccination, that Ministry of Health email we all got after our second shot, and identification starting on September 22nd to access uh, many non-essential businesses. And then official vaccine certificates with a QR code are coming to each of us on October 22nd. Charles, was this, uh, was this the right decision? And uh, how, does, how do you like the, pro- the program the way it's laid out? Oh, it's the right decision to move ahead with proof of vaccine so that we can provide safety in places that we need to do work and places to move. So, And more importantly, to entice those that are on the fence to get themselves vaccinated for the purposes of getting ourselves to herd immunity. In terms of consistency across the country, I'm a little unclear as to what that means in terms of travel. I'm still, I don't know enough about the program that's being rolled out in Ontario to to determine if that's in keeping with the rest of the provinces in the, in Canada. Uh, I like the fact that he's come forward. Take him a while to do so. We should have had it by now, but so be it. And Karen, what do you like or dislike about it? Well, I mean, I like it. Again, I think the provinces like Quebec and Ontario that had the longest lockdowns are the ones that are probably more um, amenable to the idea of a vaccine passport because we know what that feels like, certainly for my business. Um, another lockdown would be detrimental in so many ways. So for me, this is just welcome news because it does. And now it means that I, you know, I can rely on a consistent system in order to welcome people back into the facility and we all feel safe. Um, but again, you know, out in BC where they didn't have the lockdowns we had, they, you know, they've been a little bit more reticent about the passport. And um, I do agree with Charles, you know, ultimately, if we're going to have this passport, you know, at some point it should be recognized from province to province. It shouldn't be just an Ontario-based system. But, you know, I think we will get there. And um, I'm I'm glad that uh, the Premier did understand the necessity of this type of system in order to keep businesses open. John, he is certainly the Premier given a fair bit of notice uh, for this program. So that is going to provide people the time to get their vaccinations. Well, I think every, you know, every announcement he's made with respect to throughout the pandemic, he's tried to give businesses and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, folks enough chance to adjust. Obviously, because things change on a regular basis. This, of course, he gave some he gave some, uh, some some warning and some advanced notes, which I think will help businesses. But it's good news. I think it's smart. Uh, he uh, everybody needs this and I think it'll, it'll work out but there has to be some sort of national standard on this and he's been calling for that for the last little while because it's one thing to do I have one set of plan in Ontario and then you know the next province over it's a whole different different plan that that can be confusing for for people who do a lot of business and travel all right we will leave it there for this week thank you all for your time thank, thank you, you thanks so thanks much care, guys
Fightbacks Tuesday strategy panel. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Jane for Libby, and coming up next here on Fight Back, what you need to know about the fifth most common cancer in Canada, bladder cancer. What's being done to fight it and improve treatment for the 80,000 Canadians who've been diagnosed with it? and how you can catch it early. That's coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.